Welcome to the Operatic Pastcast, a presentation and preservation of operatic memories and impressions, produced by Donald Cullop. Episode 120. The 1959-1960 season of the Metropolitan Opera found Alfred Hubey as chief usher for Rudolf Bing's 10th season as general manager. Mr. Hubey's memories include the tumultuous debut of Birgit Nielsen in a new production of Tristan und Isolde, a failure of a new production of The Gypsy Baron with Nikolai Geta, Lisa Della Casa, and Regina Resnick, and revivals of Pelias et Melisande with George London, and Der Fliegende Hollander, also with George London and Leonie Riesenek. Part 2 of 5. On December 18th was one of the most spectacular nights the Met has ever seen. It would have been the debut, if it all had worked out, of Klemperer. It was the new production that Bing had promised Klemperer, and he actually engaged the Theo Otto, was a very well-known stage director in Europe that Klemper had asked for when they were negotiating very unofficially, I think, because I don't remember anything officially as a press release. I think the negotiations were basically between Bing himself and Klemper. Privately, yeah. I may be wrong. Maybe there was a press release, but that's so long ago. And uh, the whole idea of the new production was the debut of Otto Klemper. On paper, it sounded wonderful, and a debut of a soprano that wasn't known hardly at all in this country and known a little bit in Europe was Birgit Nielsen. And it turned out to be uh, Carl Byrne conducting. Carl Byrne was a very good Wagnerian conductor, not as good as he was in Strauss, but more than acceptable. And uh, the problem was the tenor. That, that was the big problem in any of the Wagner. That's why Bing didn't want to do a lot of Wagner. Wiener had been contracted, and that was the year that Wiener was starting to really have problems in his repertoire. And he gave them plenty of notice that he was withdrawing, and they had a tenor who I got to know very well, who was a tenor from the small German opera houses called Karl Liebel, very experienced, uh, not young, but not old, but had what I call a light, beautifully projected Helden tenor that was perfect for Lohengrin, which he sang at the Met the year before. But in that repertoire of Tristan, a bit too light, and uh, he had been on the roster because he was rehearsing Dutchman at that time. He was the Eric. And uh, so he did it, and I can never forget that night as long as I lived because we didn't have a record of her at that time. She had already sung at Gleimborn. She had sung in the small opera houses in Sweden, and she sung in Vienna, but strangely enough, she was the cover soprano. She told me this years later for, for Renata Tobaldi, who at that time was the, the idol of Vienna. She was covering Tobaldi in Aida and uh, I forget the other, other Verdi opera. And she was there every night waiting to go on, and Tobaldi never canceled. And that was a repertoire. She finally ended up by singing one or two of the Verdi repertoire. But this was the first time that she ever sang in a really big house. The old house was 3,700 seats. And that's like twice the size of Vienna. Uh, I don't think she ever even sang in San Francisco. And she was able to unleash her voice. This is a voice that she had to worry about, you know, keeping in. And she opened it up. 
and we heard this laser beam voice in the first act. The Brongena was, I wish it had been uh, Ludwig who had made a debut that year, but it was Irene Dallas. But she opened her voice, and the house and her voice were so compatible. It was that they, they were made for each other, and the audience that held their breath that whole first act. Incredible, incredible sound. such a great vocal performance on her part. Liebel held his own. Uh, you couldn't hear anybody. The duet was was just really her singing with Liebel accompanying. But nobody cared because it was a sound completely unlike Varnai, completely unlike Flockstad, unlike Traubel. It was her own sound, high notes to burn, and a sound that filled that house. She told me years later she was so happy she finally could sing without pulling a voice in. She opened it all up. And that performance, one of the rare times, only one other time I remember, but I, I'm not, uh, I mean, in my memory, I think, in my time at the Met, uh, the next day, the Tribune was still functioning, and the Times, she made headlines in both the Tribune, first page, not headlines on top, but right, her picture, and the big success. The audience went wild. The only time before, and I mentioned it in an earlier podcast, was the time that Roberta Peters stepped in uh, ten years earlier, this was his tenth season, in Bing's first season, at the last minute, as Zerlina, completely different role, but she also was only 19, which made the headlines, too, of the newspapers. So she became the rage. Unfortunately, and I don't think I mentioned this in, in previous podcasts, I did mention the flower episode of Carlos's second performance, but after that time, that was three years earlier, Bing had posted big signs. Bing was funny with the public. 
He was an impresario. I mean, people have a tendency to demean him because of his personality, but he was a pure impresario. But he wanted the public controlled, which is not, for me, if they're not controlled, but they're not acting riotlessly, they're acting like fans, that, that's all for the well and good. So we had these big signs posted on the walls of the family circle, balcony, and dress circle that the throwing of flowers is prohibited. My predecessor, I wasn't house manager yet, had hired firemen who had like two days off, they worked three days, something like that, plain clothes as security men, and then they were posted there to make sure nobody threw flowers, each act, you know. Then he went one step further, and I can't remember whether it was the year before, he decided no solo curtain calls. And he told the stage manager and all, we had an encore curtain, Edward, the big gold curtain, and then an encore curtain would open in the middle so that people could step out, and it was wide enough for seven or eight people to step out as a unit. And traditionally, there were, you know, especially certain operas, like the second act of Butterfly. Butterfly, I mean, she's the whole second act. She'd come out with Suzuki and uh, Sharpless and maybe Yamadori and Goro, and then they would disappear and she'd have a solo curtain call. Tobaldi in her debut, that was 55, had her solo curtain calls. And it was tradition. It was very hard for colleagues to uh, all come out together and after Butterfly or after almost, especially Tristan. I mean, Nielsen didn't get a solo curtain call that night because that was in effect the year before. What they used to do is the good colleagues would come out together with, let's say, Leecher, and then they stepped back by three steps and leaving her alone there. They did all sorts of games which were stupid. The fans were vociferous about a solo curtain call, but Bing was adamant. So Nielsen, even at that great night, never got a solo curtain call. I don't know if it bothered her or not, but she was so happy with the great, great success she had. And that Tristan, every performance, you could never get a ticket for Nielsen when she sang it. And then later on, another debutante that year was uh, the very young Krista Ludwig. Her debut was Carabino. That season, she sang Brangena, later on with Nielsen.
maybe one or two performances, she sang Amneris, which was very strange in alternating with Simonato, not completely, because Madeira also sang Amneris. She also had a, the most disappointing role she did that year, and Riesneck was the marshal, and Riesneck was doing other repertoire, and she did her first Octavian, which was so fussy. We were so used to Stevens, the, the, the ideal Octavian, who actually was still singing it. That might have been the last year. And uh, her Octavian was disappointing, not only in her manner. It wasn't right. But the beauty of one of those performances was Soderstrom, who had only sung the Susanna, and a very, I must say, disappointingly pallid, really the word pallid is correct for that, Marguerite and Faust. That was not her repertoire at that time. And then she did her best role with Sophie in Rosenkavle. It was she, Riesneck, and uh, Ludwig. I love Soderstrom. Later on, she did Elisir. She ended up in a different repertoire completely, became famous for the Janacek roles and for the heavier, heavier roles. At that particular time in the late 50s, she was a delightful soubrette, but not in a soubrette way. There was something wonderfully elegant and mature, but yet she gave you the impression of being a young girl, of much fuller sound. Another new production after the Tristan, well, actually before the Tristan in a way, but it makes no difference, it was at the end of November. It was another production that Cyril Richard was hired for that was an even worse disaster, than, much worse than the Figaro. I guess Bing decided to repeat the success of Fledermouse, which was magic above anything. Every, everyone in it, from the director, the English translation, the cast, Ormini conducting, it put the Met on the map for the Broadway theater goer. So lot, all those performances, no matter what they changed the cast, it still held up. And finally, almost 10 years later, I don't know whose decision, they decided to do the Gypsy Baron, which had only been done, I, I was amazed when I looked into it, it had been done for one performance in 1906. I don't know how they do something in those days, I guess they threw it together, it was only one performance, and never been done after. There were several mistakes. The biggest mistake was hiring Cyril Richard to do it. He did just the opposite. He directed this like a comedy of manners. That should have been in Figaro. This was Strauss, and not hardly as good a score as Fledermouse. And then Richard suggested Maurice Valenci. It was translated from German. Although, it's funny, we advertise it in the German name, Zagorna Baron, but when people came to the performances, it was called the Gypsy Baron in the program. I couldn't figure out why somebody thought that the people would think of Zagorna Baron better than the Gypsy Baron, but it was, since it was in English, we, it had to be called the Gypsy Baron. And Maurice Valenci did a horrible, jokey, embarrassing English translation that was so vulgar and so out of sync. It started with the director. The translator was also a terrible translation. And then Leinsdorf, that was not his repertoire. He thought that if he went fast, it would work much better. The cast had some very good moments to it. Lise de la Casa was one of the most beautiful women you ever saw. No matter what they did with her, in her pe peasant costume, she was much too chic. She was so elegant. And she sang it well in that terrible translation.
but you couldn't relate to her because she was not a gypsy, no matter what she dressed like. Geta did better. It was good casting in that respect. Geta, whose English diction was superb, much better than Delacazza's, had to sing some of the most awkward phrases you ever heard. Whatever's nothing I will add from Massachusetts to Japan, there's nothing that I cannot do. I'll set a bone, I'll pick a shoe. I am considered by my peers, and that when I stepped on my ears, I fought with bulls in the arena. Play tangles on the concertina. And the voice, in those days, the voice was in great shape. It was for quite a few years after, too. But it didn't make sense what he was saying. And then the other singers were Regina Resnick, was okay in her own way. part of it all was they hired Walter Schleizak, whose father, Leo, was a marvelous singer of the much earlier days that probably Bing had heard in performances during his youth in Vienna, and he had sung at the Met, a great Othello, a uh, great townhouse, and one of the great, great Heldon tenors right before Melchior. So Walter Schleizak, who actually was a comic who had a lot of work in Hollywood, in person he was a very depressing, droll man. But since he grew up in the world of opera, they started to use him on the opera quiz once in a while. And so he had that connection, and he came in with a live pig. That's the only thing that was good about that production was the pig. (laughs) That's exactly what the critics said the next day. And uh, it was a piglet, actually. It was unbelievable. It was just... Nothing worked except the pig. And the audience, I never forget that opening night. It was so bland. Ralph Sherrod, who actually did most of the productions, I don't know what he was thinking of. Uh, it was thrown together with scotch tape. There was no color. It was drab. 
Fledermaus, on the other hand, with Rolf Gerard, had incredible costumes and incredibly beautiful, bright sets. This one, very drab production. It's like nobody wanted any part of it, and especially Richard. Nothing worked, and the audience, it was like they were hit with a bomb. You couldn't believe it. I mean, they gave eight performances uh, just to fulfill the subscription. Maybe of the eight, one might have been a special one, but nobody wanted a seat. There was not one good review, and no one was happy. So that and the Figaro. I, I must say the Figaro, even though it was badly directed, had more semblance of Figaro because of Leinsdorf and Della Casa, Sieppi. No matter what the direction is, there's still Mozart. But the Gypsy Baron needed more than just the music and, and with the bad translation and the terrible jokes. I mean, embarrassing jokes. There were several other highlights, not the new production so much, but it, there was a wonderful Peleos. Unfortunately, it wasn't Montero, but it was very good conductor Jean Morel, who had started the City Opera, who really knew how to conduct French repertoire. He was not on the same level maybe as Montero or Ansemé, but he was very, very good. And that season, George London was fabulous as Golo. And the other revival that hadn't been done since Bing's first season in the same production for the audience became a sensation of the combination of Riesneck and London was the Dutchman revival, same old production of 1950, which Ship is conducting. That became the just about the sensation of the season for the two of them. I don't forget, I mean, they were so wonderful together and incandescent. Fortunately, they did it other seasons. And then Riesneck, of course, a wonderful debut as uh, Lady Macbeth. This was her first big season because she even did the first performance of the revival of the Eugene Berman Forza, which was a, a role, unlikely role for her. And But she loved to sing Italian opera, as Nielsen did. Then she also did Aida that season, and she did her first Marshallin. That was a good repertoire for her. Thank you for listening to the Operatic Pastcast. Visit the website at operaticpastcast.com.
This is your producer, Donald Collip.